Hi, church. Welcome to The Rock. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors. We're continuing our study of the book of Romans. This is part 17. We're going to be in chapter 6. You can turn there in your Bible, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, or follow along on your handout. I titled this message, God Forbid. You remember, we divided Romans into five seasons. We're starting season three right now. Season one, God's sentence. We talked about how God is righteous and holy and perfect, and we are not. In fact, people are wicked and sinful. Season two was God's salvation. It's the good news of the gospel. God gives his righteousness to everyone who believes by faith, by grace. It's the best news ever. And now we're starting season three, God's sanctification. Romans chapter six, seven, and eight deal with sanctification. You go, what's that? It's a big church word. It's God's process of helping believers grow in practical holiness. Did you know that our sanctification is God's will? Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Here's a definition of sanctification. It's also on your handout. It's God's process of helping believers grow in holiness and righteousness. So lock in right now. When you become a Christian, God declares you legally righteous. You're justified. You're totally righteous. It's by grace alone, by his gift alone. Now, as a Christian, God wants you to grow in practical righteousness, to become less sinful and to become more like Jesus. In other words, that our life would start to grow closer to our position. So that's what we're going to get into now, sanctification. So one editorial comment before we dive into chapter 6 just want to highlight doctrine, what you believe, application, how you live. So Romans chapters 1 all the way to 11 are doctrine, what to believe. And then 12 through 16 are application, how to live. This is a reoccurring pattern in the New Testament letters. Most of the letters start with this pattern, like Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, a bunch of them start with doctrine first, what to believe, and then application, how to live. Some call this your theology and your liveology. But if you're wired like me, I'm a real practical kind of guy. I'm like, yep, 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 yep. Just tell me what to do. But that's not necessarily a good thing. If we don't understand the right thing to believe and we just kind of force some behavior in our life, it will ultimately fail. If you try to do a bunch of application without understanding the doctrine first, it will ultimately break down. You eventually be like, why am I even doing this? Well, that was the doctrine you skipped. Doctrine, what you actually, truly, really believe, impacts how you live your life. So you have to have a good foundation of right beliefs before we move to application. So as a church, it's worth us investing the time learning this doctrine in 6 through 11. So season 3, sanctification. Here's how I'd break it down. Chapter 6, we're going to talk about how a believer is dead to sin. Chapter 7, we're going to talk about how there's this war you have between your old nature and your new self. And then chapter 8, we're going to talk about the ultimate victory that we have in Christ. So let's pray, and we're going to get into Romans chapter 6. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here. They want to learn your word. Just help us to engage our hearts and minds right now, Lord. Help us to learn these deep doctrines. Help us to have right beliefs so that we have right actions, Lord. We do not want to just skip over the doctrine, Lord. We want to understand it. Lord, help us to understand today that we are dead to our sin, 
and what that means for us practically. We say all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to back up one verse to 520. Brian covered this last week. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So Paul is teaching, you remember, how powerful grace is. Where sin increased, grace increased to cover it. It superabounded. Grace is unbeatable. You cannot outsin grace. Somebody's like, the more I sin, the more grace I get? Yeah. So now Paul's going to answer a question I'm sure he heard a thousand times. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So justification by faith. You're just saved by grace, by faith to many people. That seems dangerously too easy. People have said to me right here in this church, wait, you're only saved by grace? Well, that'll lead to sin. What's my motivation to be holy, to not sin? This is a question I'm sure Paul heard from many of his opponents, many people seeking to understand. I'm sure that as many of you have shared the gospel of grace alone with friends and family and classmates, you've probably heard some variation of this question. I've heard these different versions over the years. What would prevent me from sinning all the time then if it's grace alone? Grace alone, doesn't that promote sinning? Or if God saves the wicked, what's the point in being godly? Or, or can you continue to sin as a Christian? They're all variations of the same question. Uh, if we sin more and we get grace more, that's kind of where this thought process goes. Now, there are two ditches we need to avoid as we study this passage. Imagine you're driving down this road. You don't want to go off on the left ditch or the right ditch. We're talking about legalism or licentiousness. Legalistic Christians create a bunch of extra rules to try to earn God's favor. Paul, you can't teach grace alone. You're going to have anarchy. Give those people some bonus rules, you know, rules about what clothes they wear and tattoos and music and movies and dancing and gambling. Give them a bunch of rules. Help them stay on the road. We're not going to really get into legalism today in this teaching, but the problem is more rules you give people, that doesn't keep them from sinning. It's about that connection with the Lord, which we are going to get into. The other ditch, the other side, is the licentious Christian. They're like, see, by grace, let's live like hell. <laughs> so Paul is directly addressing that today. I thought about a way to illustrate the question he's answering. Let's say there was a homeless orphan that was living on the streets. And a family decided to adopt that orphan. They said, hey, we love you. We pick you. We're adopting you into our family. You're going to live with us now. You're part of our family now. Nothing will change that. And the orphan's first question is, okay, great. What happens if I punch you in the face? That's essentially what the question is asking. Saved by grace. Can I sin? The question reveals you may not understand the gift you've been given. Or you may not understand what sin actually does to you. Both the legalist and the licentious person don't fully understand the gospel. I'm going to add a bunch of rules to the gospel. Or I can sin and still be good. Neither response shows you get it. I like how Charles Spurgeon, the pastor, approached it. He had some wisdom here, said, It's a precious doctrine that the saints are safe, but it is a damnable inference that therefore they may live as they like. It's a glorious truth that God will keep his people, but it is an abominable falsehood that sin will do them no harm. Amen. So now in verses 2 through 5, 
Paul's going to answer this question. So what is his response to, man, if grace increases, that when sin increases, well, then let's just keep sinning. Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Other translations say far from it, or of course not, or I should hope not. The King James says, God forbid. It's an idiom in the Greek. It's the strongest possible reaction. Kind of like, I'm angry, you would even think that. The word we shows that this was written to Christians. Christian, you have died to sin. It's past tense. It's not that we don't struggle with sin, but there was a one-time event that was completed when you became a believer. It's that you died to sin. Now, this might raise a few questions in your mind, so we need a few biblical sideboards as we talk about sin and the life of a believer. Here's some thoughts. Truths regarding the Christian and their sin. Are Christians dead to sin? Yes, we just wrote that in Romans chapter 6. Are Christians tempted? Yes. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about that. Can Christians achieve sinless perfection in this life? No. 1 John gets into that. Do Christians struggle with their sin nature and sinning? Yes. Romans 7, James 5, 1 John 1 again. Are Christians ultimately mastered or controlled by their sin? No, that'll be our last verse that we cover here in a few minutes, Romans 6, 7. So clearly, we need to handle this carefully. There's a lot of ditches that we can crash into if we're not wise. So on your handout, your first fill in the blank, the big idea for this message, Christian, you are dead to your sin. And there's some profound implications of that in our life, which we're going to unpack. Now, the unbeliever is still a sinner. They're alive and well in their sin. There's no increasing holiness. There's no becoming more and more like Jesus. There's no pattern of increasing sanctification. The unbeliever lives in their sin. But the Christian is dead to their sin. Christian no longer lives in the realm of sin. Again, I'm not saying believers don't sin. Paul's going to address that in Romans chapter 7. I am saying that the power of sin has been broken in the life of a Christian. This passage has confused Christians over the years. That's why I started with some of those biblical sideboards. Christians have read this and said, oh, Christians don't sin. Wrong, they do. I would like to introduce you to every single person I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> There's a huge difference between struggling against sin and living in sin. In this section, we're talking about how the power of sin has been broken in your life, Christian. Look at verse 2. How can we still live in it? Verse 6, we are no longer enslaved to it. Verse 7, we've been set free from sin. And then verse 14, which Bill will cover next week, sin will have no dominion over you. Again, the difference between fighting sin and being mastered by sin. It's the difference between giving full vent to your anger, fighting to be self-controlled, and just letting it run wild in your life. You know, the amazing thing about the gospel is that every single person is welcome to Jesus's table. He sat with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Tax collectors betrayed their countrymen for money. Prostitutes sold their body for money. Everybody ate with Jesus. Everybody was fellowship with him. But everybody who met Jesus went away changed. Jesus ate with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He had changed. He repaid all the people he stole from. When Jesus interacted with a woman caught in adultery, he said to you, her, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
Meeting Jesus changes you. True faith produces change. Everybody who meets Jesus changes. They have new desires, the sinful things they love to do. They don't like to do as much. They have new affections. And again, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm talking about seeing evidence of God's Spirit growing you. I talk to many of you week to week. I see you growing in love and peace and patience. I see God changing you in my own life. There's a number of things God has changed. I think of when I was a new husband years ago, I was very, very bad at communicating with my wife. How was your day? Good. That's all I got. (laughs) I learned how to talk to my wife and share what was going on in my life and listen to her and understand her. I've seen God grow me in a variety of ways. I've seen God grow my wife and my children. I see God growing so many of you. Maybe that's your action item for today. Tell a believer a practical way that you see God growing them and changing them. So positionally, the Christian is dead to sin, and that should lead to sin's power decreasing in the life of a Christian. Think about World War II. The Nazis surrendered to the Allied powers in May 7, 1945. The war officially ended. Were there still Nazis running around on May 8th that probably thought they were still fighting? Of course. Were there concentration camps that needed to be liberated? Of course. Were there Nazi fortresses that needed to be taken over and emptied out? Of course. Likewise, for the Christian, sin has been defeated. You are dead to sin. Now it's just cleanup operations. God gives us new desires. God, create in me a new heart. Where do you see evidence of God's Spirit working in your life, changing your affections and desires? It's happening. One of the most encouraging things we do as pastors is when somebody talks about how God is helping somebody grow and change. It's super encouraging. Here's another Spurgeon quote. I thought it was really good. He said, The faith which saves is not an unproductive faith, but is always a faith which produces good works and abounds in holiness. Amen. So why is this amazing truth true, that we are dead to sin? Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is what Brian talked about last week. For the Christian, Jesus is our representative head. Jesus represents you. What has happened to Jesus is true of you, believer. This is past tense in the Greek. This has already happened. So for the Christian, when Christ died, we died with him. When Christ was buried, we were buried with him. When Christ resurrected, we were resurrected with him. This is profound. Is your second blank. The Christian is brought into union with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. When you become a Christian, you become one or united with Christ Jesus. So all Christians through faith are baptized into the saving work of Jesus. The word baptized means to dunk or to dip. Like you're washing dishes in your sink and you dip it under there and you get it all soapy and you scrub it out and then you dip it again to rinse it off. The word baptizo in the Greek means to dunk under water. It does not mean sprinkle. If you don't believe me, look it up in the Greek. Every New Testament reference to baptism is talking about dunking under water. You can't even understand this verse if you don't understand that the word baptize means to dunk. One meta comment on this that struck me was that Every single verse in the New Testament talking about baptism, like this passage here, it assumes every Christian has been baptized. 
The New Testament never contemplates an unbaptized Christian. That means baptism was universally practiced in the first century. So baptism is not a requirement of salvation, but it's a public sign of salvation. It's this outward physical symbol of an inward spiritual conversion of the Christian. It would be inconceivable to Paul and company to have an unbaptized Christian. Now, some Christians will read this and they'll incorrectly teach, well, you've got to get baptized to be saved. But that, we just spent chapters 3, 4, and 5 talking about how we're not saved by our good works. Paul's not going to do a 180 be like, scratch that, go get baptized. This is a completely dry verse, as one commentator said. A couple questions that prove baptism doesn't save you. Does baptism save you? Is baptism a good work? Yes, absolutely. Are we saved by our good works? No, absolutely not. Ephesians 2, Titus 3, Romans 3, 2 Timothy 1. Do you need to be baptized to be saved? No. Should you get baptized? Absolutely. Why? Jesus Christ commanded you to. All right, your third blank. Baptism is an outward physical symbol of an inward spiritual conversion of the Christian. It's a symbol like we talked about a few weeks ago. Taking off your wedding ring doesn't make you unmarried. Putting on a wedding ring doesn't make you married. It's a sign or symbol of your marriage. Our next verse, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of light, life. So again, there's a profound truth being taught about your identity in Christ. Christian, you are identified by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what our verses are teaching. Baptism is a symbol of your union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus' death becomes your death. You don't need to die for your sins, which is fantastic news. Jesus' resurrection is your resurrection. You can live a victorious life in Christ. Again, doctrine leads to application. New identity flows into new behavior. Some of you are thinking, but I still sin. I know you do every day. We all see it. I also sin every day, ask my family. <laughs> Romans chapter 7, we'll talk about why we still sin. Hold on. But I love that phrase here. It says that we might walk in newness of life. Newness of life, walking with Christ. This speaks of our relationship. The Lord is alive right now, and you can have a relationship with him. Chris and I love to go on walks. We walk around our neighborhood. We walk, we talk, we even hold hands. It's like a walkie-talkie. It's a great time. It's a time of connection. Things like this build our relationship with God, talking to the Lord in prayer, reading his word, listening to the preaching of his word, worshiping God, hanging out with his kids, serving his kids. Those things grow our relationship with God. This newness of life is found in getting to know Christ. As you get to know Jesus, it starts changing you your attitudes, your affections, your desires, your character. But some of you go, I feel old and dirty and used, and I hear this, but I'm a Christian, but I just feel dirty and used. But in Christ, there's incredible newness. That's why Jesus talked about being born again. Some of you go, but you don't know what I've done. I'm dirty. I'm wicked. There's newness of life found in Jesus Christ. 
Isaiah 1, Revelation 7, and Psalm 51 all talk about how God takes away our old sinful nature and makes us new like snow. Christian, your feelings do not define reality. You are fresh and new in Christ. That's what the Bible is teaching you. In fact, your feelings are lying to you. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is deceitful above all things. But we live in the day and age that if we feel it, it's fact. Christian goes, well, I feel sinful, so I'm not going to be around God or believers. Christian, we've got to stop thinking about our feelings as facts. Our feelings are something to listen to, but they're something we need to manage. We should discipline and shepherd our feelings. Your fourth blank, it's a question. Are you walking in the old life? or the new life? Why can we walk in newness of life? Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I love that old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It says, Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So you're walking in the old life or the new life. The new life is found in Jesus Christ. The old life, you've been down that road a hundred times. That's the old road of death and sin and Satan. Okay, next verse, verse 5. If we've been united with him in his death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Again, this profound identity truth. You and Jesus, you are identified by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We're talking about being dead to our sin. Now, if you love your sin more than you love Jesus, I might ask you to consider if you actually know Jesus as your Savior. Now, granted, there's a war between our old nature and our new nature. We're going to unpack that the next few weeks, so hang tight. But right now, we're talking about this doctrinal truth that we have died, we have been buried, and we have been resurrected with Jesus. When I think of our resurrection, I think of 1 Corinthians 15. When my grandpa Whitney died a number of years ago, my dad asked me to read this at the funeral. I'm going to just read a couple verses, 1 Corinthians 15, talking about our glorious future resurrection. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and mortal puts on immortality, then what shall come to pass? The saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That is our glorious future, Christian, because we're united to Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So verse 1, Paul asked the question, should we sin that we get more grace? Verses 2 through 5, he said, you're dead to sin now. Of course not. And now in 6 and 7, he's going to talk about how we don't serve sin. Next verse, verse 6. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. I love that first two words. We know this is not up for debate. Doesn't depend what you feel like. We know this truth. Paul is repeating this theme. Our old self was crucified with Jesus Christ. We won't be trapped by sin anymore. Old doesn't mean old in years, but rather worn out. So you're old man. I'm not talking about your dad. 
Your old self was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ around 33 AD on Golgotha, which is a crazy thought. Your old sinful self died on that cross with Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6, it says, brought to nothing, which means in the Greek, inoperative. When I think about something being inoperative, I think about what my mom would let me do with old broken appliances when I was a kid. Her mixer or blender would break. She'd get a new one. She'd give me her old one. I'd take it out in the garage. I'd disassemble the whole thing. I'd hacksaw it and I'd hammer it and break it and cut it. And I would dissect the entire blender mixer. I just shattered. It was rendered inoperative. Imagine if somebody grabbed a couple pieces and they're trying to mix something. Like, sorry, bro, that blender is inoperative. There's a new one in the kitchen. Go use that one. Your old sinful self was rendered inoperative on the cross when Jesus Christ died. That's why a sinning Christian is miserable. They know that's my old self. They know Jesus died to free me from that sin. When they sin, they're like, oh, man, that's my old self. That's inoperative. That's not who I am anymore. That old self that's the mom who screams at her kids in anger. Sister, that old self is dead. It's time to put on a new self of self-control. Or it's the dad, the old self. He's angry all the time, yelling and swearing. Brother, take off that old self. That old self's dead. Put on the new self of love. Or it's the son who's disrespectful of his parents. Hey, young man, take off that old self. Put on the new self of obeying your parents. Or maybe it's a woman at work. She's lazy at her job. That's your old self. But on the new self of working for Jesus. Amen? Sin is part of that old, unregenerate life that no longer has a place in our life. And then it says we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In the Roman Empire, slavery was everywhere. Probably the majority of the church were slaves. You were once a slave to sin, but now you died to sin. You're no longer under the domination of sin. I like how Lucas Osiander, a German pastor, put it. He said, having been set free from sin, let us have no more to do with it. Although it remains in our life, let us not give in to its desires. So what does it practically mean to be dead to sin? If a Christian really, truly believes, you know, I'm dead to my sin. I think it would mean many things, but at a minimum, I think it's going to be this stuff. We're going to approach God's throne in prayer boldly and quickly. We're going to honestly confess and share our sins to other believers because we're like, I'm dead. That, that's dead. That's old me. I'm, that's dead to me. The control of sin would start to diminish in the life of a believer. Sin would become less and less attractive if you start to go, I'm dead to that. You would not identify yourself by your sin. You're like, that's the old me. That's the me that died. And would quickly seek help when tempted. Hey, the old me is trying to hurt me. I need some help right here. You know, as pastors, we do marriage counseling. And that could be embarrassing. You meet with the pastors and you talk about how your marriage is struggling. And it is very tempting in those situations to make yourself look good and your spouse look bad. But a couple who gets this, that, oh, I'm dead to my sin. The marriage counseling goes totally different. They're like, yeah, I sinned, but it's not who I am. I'm changing. I need your help. What are your thoughts? They want to grow. The whole spirit of the marriage counseling is different when a couple gets, oh, I'm new. I'm changing. Jesus is in my life. That's the old me. Help me grow. Help me be more like Jesus Christ. So this truth that we are dead to our sin impacts something practical like how we live in our marriage. 
Okay, our last verse. Verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. So again, amen. Christ freed us from our slavery to sin. The word used here is justified, declared righteous. Sin's stranglehold in your life is broken. And again, Paul's not talking about sinless perfection. He's talking about the domination of sin in your life has been defeated. Your fifth blank in Christ, the Christian life should have increasing sanctification resulting in greater maturity and obedience to God's word. Again, that evidence that God is working in your life. I'm not saying there isn't a war. Romans 7 is going to talk all about it. But doctrinally, we're dead to sin. We are in war against our old nature. But in Christ, we're gaining ground. I've been reading a book about American history lately. I've enjoyed it a lot. It's been really good. I just finished the chapter on the Civil War. Remember, the Civil War lasted from 1861 to 1865. About 700,000 Americans died in a war that was ultimately about freeing the slaves. President Lincoln, in the middle of the war in 1863, Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves. But what was fascinating and sad to read was that some slaves, when they were freed, they got some land, they got a mule, they started clearing the land and growing their crops and living their life. But there were other slaves that did not know what to do, so they went back to their old master, in many cases a master who was cruel to them, and they started to work for and serve their old cruel master. I'm pretty sure every single slave knew they were free. You can guarantee news like that spread like wildfire through the country. You're free. Lincoln freed you in 1863. 700,000 Americans died so that you could have your freedom. But there were former slaves who did not realize the implications of their freedom. They didn't know what to do. So during the reconstruction of the South, there were freed men who lived like slaves. As we bring this to a close, this is an amazing lesson for us as Christians. There are some Christians who realize, I've been set free from sin. By the grace of God, they start to build a new life in Christ with new affections, new desires, increasing sanctification because they go, the old sinful me has died. But there are other Christians that don't understand or they don't believe that they've died to sin. So for them, they go back to the chains of sin. They lock themselves back up, so to speak. Your sixth and final blank, Christian, you live out of who you think you are. That's why doctrine matters so much. Are you living like a slave to your sin? God forbid. You know, for me in college, I keep going back to how much Romans impacted me in college. I had some real breakthroughs in understanding who I was in Christ. As I started to study these truths, it started to change me with habitual sins that I had struggled with for years. Wait a minute, I'm a new man. That sin is the old man. I died to that sin. I'm free now. I trust you're living like a free man or a free woman. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for Romans chapter 6. We thank you for this amazing truth that we are dead to our sin. Lord, help our life to match this doctrine. We want our theology and our liveology to match up. God, you say we are dead to our sin. We want to live a life that reflects that we believe that. And by your grace, we are growing more and more dead to our sin. And God, we thank you that we are, we are joined with you in your death, burial, and resurrection. Help us to walk in newness of life. 
God, I ask that my brothers and sisters, that their life by your grace would day by day be more in alignment with their identity, that they're dead to their sin. Lord, we want to live like free men and free women. Help us to do that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.